Enter the Ebony Tower Podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. This episode is sponsored by Topcoat. Topcoat believes that bold nails are for bosses, so they created bold, beautiful shades that work for the classroom, the office, even the beach. Also, as an added plus, all Topcoat polish is carcinogen-free, vegan, and paraben-free. Topcoat is proud to be a woman-owned and black-owned business, so visit their site today at www.taupecoat.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Ebony Tower podcast. This is Daphne. And this is Rachel. And welcome to another installment of Tales from the Tower. Today, we welcome a very special guest. Her name is Whitney, and she is actually one of the co-founders of the Ebony Tower website. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. Whitney will be sharing her tale of balancing new motherhood and graduate school. So here we go. So I first found out that I was expecting my in the middle of my second year of uh, my PhD program. Uh, we were very excited. Uh, we were my husband and I were worried that it might take some time, but we got pregnant thankfully very very quickly, and this coincided with a pretty trying time. Uh, in the sense that I was also preparing for my comprehensive exams. And the pregnancy throughout was pretty tough. We had a lot of um, special trips to the high-risk OBGYN. There was a lot of emergency room trips. Uh, There were concerns about our baby's development. Uh, But thankfully, all of that turned out uh, okay for her, and uh, she was born uh, in November. Um, bright and early in the morning, she was close to 10 pounds and just very, very beautiful and lovely. And after she was here, that's kind of when a lot of trouble started for me and my health. So throughout the pregnancy, like I said, I had a lot of health issues, uh, but I was told that the extra weight that I had gained, uh, the swelling in my feet, um, and the shortness of breath that I had experienced all through the last term of my pregnancy were pretty normal. Uh, They were just generally regular pregnancy symptoms. So when I was about eight months, I remember complaining to my doctor that um, I was having really high heart rate issues. You know, I was taking my blood pressure pretty regularly because as they should be, they were concerned um, about preeclampsia. But up until um, my daughter was born, um, they didn't really have any specific concerns about that yet. But during labor and delivery, my heart rate remained really high. And so the solution was to pump me uh, with a lot of fluids. Uh, which I think in hindsight was probably not the best idea considering what was going on. So we cut to November. I have a beautiful, happy, healthy baby. Uh, My husband and I moved to the recovery room. My mother is there. My in-laws are there. And they are looking very concerned because I am extremely swollen and puffy and I'm having trouble breathing. Thankfully, a nurse came in and noticed that I was experiencing some shortness of breath and decided to take action. Uh, They were originally concerned that I might have some blood clots, so they sent me down for a CT scan, uh, of which, of course, I was terrified because I had never had um, 
any kind of scams before this, you know, giving birth was the first time that I had ever stayed overnight in a hospital. And I was also terrified of having to separate from my new baby. You know, I was worried that something was going to happen to me considering all of the recent reports about the increasing maternal mortality rate here in the U.S. and how it's particularly high for Black women. Um, So, A lot of calamity ensued during the CT scan. You know, I I went downstairs alone in the basement of this hospital. They hooked me up to an IV that broke during my CT scan. I had to have uh, another scan done uh, just an hour or so later because they couldn't get a clear picture. Um, And then they sent me back to my room with no word of whether or not I was all clear for several hours. And I finally had to harangue the nurses more multiple times to make sure that I was okay. And I finally got a phone call from a doctor saying that I was fine after all of that. In the meantime, I was also really stressed out and struggling to breastfeed, um, which is something that I had committed to doing earlier in my pregnancy and something I was really excited about. But I think just because of all of the immense stress and pressure that my body was under, given the health issues that I was having, I just wasn't able to produce the milk that was necessary. And so right from the beginning, there were some things that were probably red flags that just weren't really caught. And so after a couple of days, I was discharged from the hospital and I went home with my family and taking care of this new baby that I was so excited about. And I was literally struggling to pick her up and walk three feet with her to put her into her crib. And after about a day and a half of that, my mother, who is a nurse, decided that she was going to pull rank and said that I needed to go to the hospital. Now, thankfully, I live about three minutes away from a hospital, um, which is different from the one where I gave birth. But I went to the emergency room, and my blood pressure was extremely high, and they admitted me to the hospital right away. Thankfully, I was able to get a room in like the labor and recovery center so that my husband and my baby could come with me, which was really nice because she was only about two to three days old at the time. Uh, and while I was there, uh, they treated me for postpartum preeclampsia, which can be very, very serious. If I had not gone to the hospital, I wonder whether or not it would have progressed to full-blown eclampsia, which can cause seizures and things like that. And so while I was hospitalized again, uh, after giving birth to my daughter, I was given a lot of fluids and a magnesium drip. And I think they realized somewhere in the three days that I was there that pumping me with fluids was the worst possible thing that they could be doing. Um, And then they gave me a diuretic, which immediately pulled about 40 pounds off of me. I had gained 50 pounds during my pregnancy. I lost 40 uh, following the administration of that medication because it wasn't actually weight. It was mostly a fluid. And fluid at this point that had enlarged my heart way beyond uh, the normal pregnancy heart enlargement that happens. And at this point, I was also experiencing a reduced ejection fraction, uh, which is really about how well your heart is pumping. And so here's where I had my first interaction with a cardiologist who Uh, was very helpful to me at first, and that would eventually change. So one part that I failed to mention before was that uh, in between 
being treated for postpartum preeclampsia and giving birth, I had actually gone to my PCP and I had seen the nurse practitioner that I had seen throughout my pregnancy. And, you know, they had given me an EKG to monitor my heart and run some blood tests. And my blood work was slightly elevated, but nothing that they deemed abnormal. And I was told by my PCP over and over again that I was totally fine and that it was just stress and anxiety. I was told by my nurse practitioner that I was fine uh, other than needing to be on some sort of anti-anxiety medication because they were very concerned that I was experiencing postpartum depression. They were constantly giving me screenings or telling me that I needed to be on specific medications. And as someone who worked in the mental health field before coming back to graduate school, I was a little suspicious of this desire to push anti-anxiety medications, any kind of psychotropic drugs, onto someone who had just given birth um, Mm. when they were complaining about physical pains. Because at this point, like I said, I was having difficulty breathing and also experiencing chest and back pains, which can be symptoms of heart issues. So I had seen a cardiologist when I was treated for preeclampsia, and I was released home. I was given some medication to deal with blood pressure, um, and I thought that everything was fine. And I was settling into uh, raising my beautiful baby, um, and things were going really well for a little while. And my cardiologist decided that it was a good time to cut my medication in half. In hindsight, again, probably a terrible idea uh, because as soon as that happened, I experienced excruciating chest pain to the point where I could not sleep through the night. Um, I felt like something was squeezing on my chest from the front to the back and kind of compressing me slowly, which made it really difficult to not only breathe and walk around, but really difficult to carry my baby. And you add on to um, that having to be hunched over breastfeeding or using a breast pump several hours during the day. It was a lot of stress on my body because at this point I still wasn't producing enough milk to feed her. Um, And so that was, there were, it was about a month and a half of that kind of pain on and off and taking this medication and reaching out to my PCP and my nurse practitioner and this cardiologist and everyone is telling me that it's basically in my head. They keep giving me these postpartum depression screenings and then telling me I need to be on medication. So I said, I'm not going to take your advice on medication. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not a therapist. Uh, but I will go see a, a therapist if that will make you feel better. And it did actually make me feel better in the long run. Um, someone who was just listening to me and hearing my point of view on things uh, instead of trying to push a certain narrative about what was happening to me. And then it got to be the end of December, and I was really tired of feeling this way because I was very sure that there was something physical going on with me, and being a graduate student and having access to medical journals, I started looking things up about my symptoms. Um, and I found this disorder or disease called peripartum cardiomyopathy, which uh, is a type of pregnancy-induced heart failure that is related to swelling in your lower extremities, which I definitely had. It's related to shortness of breath and chest pains and also 
uh, a lowered ejection fraction, that thing that I mentioned earlier, and an enlargement of your heart, specifically your left ventricle. And so all of these things sounded like what was going on with me. And I couldn't get any of my practitioners, my doctors to take that seriously. And when I talked to my cardiologist, he was saying over and over again, no, you're too young to have heart failure. And yes, I am too young to have heart failure. However, I'm not too young to have this kind of pregnancy-induced heart failure. So uh, feeling concerned that I was not being taken seriously by my doctors, also knowing about the kind of treatment or lack of treatment that Black women can receive within the medical world, I started to search for people like me online, and I stumbled upon this Facebook group. It's a Facebook group for survivors of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And somehow there is a doctor who also does research that is part of this group. And so he not only posts things about the, the new research that's coming out about peripartum cardiomyopathy, but he also responds to people's questions. And so I wrote up my story. I put everything that I possibly could about what had been going on with me for the past couple of months. And he responded. Um, and I asked about specialists in the area that I am in uh, who know about this condition and can really provide good care. And I got a name. And so I decided that I was going to take matters into my own hands because the cardiologist that I had initially was so sure that because I was a black woman, that this was all just hypertension and everything was going to be fine and was really dismissive uh, when I pushed back or questioned the way that he was thinking about things. So I decided that I was going to email this new doctor at a much better hospital uh, in the city here. And I decided to use my Harvard email address because there was something in me that knew that this was going to be the thing that got this doctor's attention. And also because he is a doctor through the medical school here. And so I emailed him between the week of Christmas and New Year's, not really expecting any kind of response. And he emailed me back within two hours. And he said that he would absolutely see me and that he would see me as soon as possible. And within a couple of weeks, I was able to see him. And within another week, I did in fact get a diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. My medication had to be immediately changed. My diet had to be immediately changed. We weren't just dealing with high blood pressure. We were dealing with a type of pregnancy-induced heart failure. And I often wonder if I hadn't had the email address that I had, of whether or not he would have responded. But in the end, I'm thankful that he did because I think right now I'm finally getting the care and the treatment that I need. Uh, and that means that I'm here to raise my baby and also finish my studies, which have kind of taken a backseat uh, with everything that's going on. I, I can only imagine. And I am so happy that you reached out to this specialist. And I think you kind of speak to how connections to certain institutions can serve as capital. I would hope that he would have responded to you Either way, we may never know, but 
just thinking about your story in relation to all of the stories that are continuing to be published about the outcomes of Black mothers and Black infants and how regardless of education level, you're in a doctoral program, and regardless of socioeconomic status, they are experiencing these negative maternal health outcomes. Uh, And it's also interesting that given your counseling background, you know what's going on with yourself and you are probably more of an expert than your PCP or your nurse practitioner and they would not listen to you. So, you know, it's sad, um, but I'm happy that you got the help that you needed. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm very happy that I got the help that I needed as well. That whole process of kind of going back and forth with my original set of doctors was very frustrating because again, they were trying to recommend medication that to me is a little bit out of their wheelhouse. And it wasn't until I mentioned that even before I was a counselor, I was a legal assistant for a medical malpractice attorney that they took my concerns a little bit seriously and had me come in to do some additional blood work, etc. But even that was more of a a placating thing, I think, at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, I think your story, Winnie, really shows like the complexity and nuance of social capital, right? Because people aren't taking you seriously, even though you have a particular background that should make them take you more seriously, let's say, unfortunately so. And furthermore, right, you had access to these medical journals to try to start to figure it out. That access allowed you to then find you know, more people and kind of be like, I think this is what's going on with me. So there's all these levels of like access and then like people shutting you down or not listening to you. And wow, that story just, it's really shocking. And I think we need to have more conversations about what's going on in the medical field and why this is happening to Black women. Wow. Yeah. And in in addition to some of the knowledge minimal that I had about what is potentially going on. I, you know, my mother is a nurse and my mother-in-law is a respiratory therapist uh, who works at a larger urban hospital a few hours from here. And so she's actually seen people with peripartum cardiomyopathy before. And she was very concerned that something was going on with my heart and that it was not just stress and anxiety. So I had some of the minimal knowledge that I had uh, around possible heart issues. In addition to the fact that I you know, was a, a mental health therapist and am pretty open to the idea of taking medication when necessary. So it wasn't like I was adverse to getting mental health support in any way. I just wanted to make sure that my physical health was being addressed. Um, And I think that there's been so much necessary attention, obviously, to postpartum depression. And I'm really glad that that has become such a really important topic that practitioners take very seriously now, because I think it's been long ignored, especially for women of color. But to see that and nothing else... And then on top of that, just from like the grad school perspective, the screening tool that they were using to assess this level of 
potential postpartum depression was extremely outdated. And I really hope that somebody gets a new tool because it was full of double barreled questions and whatever they were looking for, they weren't going to find with that screening tool. So I really hope that someone updates that soon. So like my little bit of knowledge, and then we also have like the knowledge of my family and who were at some of these appointments with me. Right. Um, and still not really getting anywhere. And that is so heartbreaking because you're talking about people who are in the medical field times people who have that social capital that you were just mentioning. And I was still coming up against a brick wall. And so that makes me think really deeply about women who do not have the same access to that information that I did or the sense of empowerment to question a doctor who is supposed to be an expert, right? And what does that say for them? What does it say for the kind of care that they're getting or not getting? If you have to take so much initiative in the care that you're receiving, but you don't recognize that you need to take that initiative because doctors are supposed to have all of the answers, like where does that leave you? It's really frustrating for me. And then another thing that I was thinking about is I went to a research workshop for a class that I was taking And one of the first presentations was about differences in assessment of patient pain based on race. And so this study was talking about how medical professionals, doctors and emergency rooms, nurses, all those other staff, don't recognize when people of color are in pain or they underestimate the pain that the person is in. So like if you're like on a scale of one to 10, if you're saying that your pain is at like a 10 as a a black person, like you basically have to be in that much visible pain in order for a medical professional to realize that you actually need some sort of pain, pain medication or pain management, right? Whereas like a white person might exhibit a a pain that's like a four or a five. And that pain is more easily recognizable by the medical professional treating them. It's a really, really interesting study. Um, But it's also super disheartening that even in the sense of needing like a Tylenol, a medical professional may not recognize that need for a Black person. Yeah, I've read some of those studies before. On my other podcast, we actually did an episode about the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. and why Black people might not be as affected. And it's because they were being potentially undertreated for pain while others were being overtreated. You mentioned graduate school. So graduate school gave you the tools and like Rachel mentioned, the access to journals because those things are expensive. Expensive. But when I think about your story within the context of graduate school, it makes graduate school seems like the most insignificant thing ever. <laughs> it's kind of like, I think your story reminds me that there's life outside of graduate school. There are like really important things that we have to attend to. And when we're in graduate school, we think that is the, the most important thing ever. But it's an experience like this that like really allows people, me particularly, just to be like a little bit more centered in the fact that that's a small aspect of something that will really get put on a back burner when the actual important things in life 
come up. 100%. Like I mentioned earlier, I had, by all accounts, a pretty rough pregnancy. So even before we got to all of the postpartum health issues, there were a lot of things that I was needing to manage during that really critical year of grad school, like my comprehensive exams. I think we were waiting on some really, really critical test results about the baby's development at the same time that I was taking my comprehensive written exams. And so even that, at some point, I think I paused on taking the exam so that I could go to a doctor's appointment and get the results of this test. So even things like that, that I had spent two years preparing for that were really the bait of everyone's existence at the time, that had to be put on the back burner for like a hot second as well. Because we were talking about things like the health of my baby as opposed to this test that the institution wanted us to take. So it really did help put a lot of different things in in perspective just from the beginning. And so when she got here and just looking at her, you know, little face, it definitely helps me remember why I'm even doing the work that I'm doing anyway. The work that I'm doing is centered around young people and making their lives better. Why not start with the young person I meant to take care of? And prioritize her. Yeah, you know, and I'll make a little bit of an argument for the, the, and not that you guys are saying the opposite, but for the importance of graduate school is like the studies that you're talking about, the fact that we're aware that there is a systematic and historical problem that is affecting Black women more than other groups in society is due to the kind of work we're being trained in right now due to research, right? sociological and medical history research to understand that also Black people's pain is not being looked at in the same way as other racial groups in this nation and maybe worldwide, who knows. So that also reminds me why it's so important to have gone to graduate school, to have learned research methods, to then be able to do research that maybe can help people realize uh, these things that can seem like, oh, it, it was just my experience or it's a coincidence or it was just like this thing that happened to me and be able to string these stories together and be like, no, absolutely not. This is a structural historical issue. 100%. I don't think that I would have been so primed for the small fight that I had to have had I not been all over the CDC's website looking at the statistics related to Black maternal mortality. I don't think that I would have been so well armed with facts had I not looked at the research about peripartum cardiomyopathy and how it differs in how it's presented for white women versus black women. Now, this is a this is a disorder or a disease that I would say disproportionately impacts black women as well, in the sense that if being of African descent is listed as a risk factor for peripartum cardiomyopathy, right? And so the the doctor that I had originally discussed that was on that Facebook group he primarily does his research in Haiti because if peripartum cardiomyopathy occurs in one in three to 5,000 births here in the United States, it occurs in one in 300 pregnant women in Haiti. Wow. Right. So this is not just a, you know, heart issue 
that is specific to Black women in the United States, it's a very serious problem all over the world. It's so interesting that, you know, you put it in the context of like, okay, this is a global issue. And Rachel, how you also mentioned the importance of having the training that we have as researchers in order to be able to understand that this is a part of a a larger issue. And it's so interesting, full disclosure, I went to a therapy session this past Wednesday and I actually talked to my therapist about my apprehension or fear, whatever you want to call it, around having children, how I wanted to be healthy because I had read all of these studies and the things that were in like popular media, like the New York Times, but also things that you can only find if you have access to mm-hmm. a database to see what's happening. And she did not believe me. She was just like, oh, you need to have faith. And I'm like, yeah, you have to have faith, but these numbers are real. And, you know, she kept trying to make it seem like I was just having like this weird, random anxiety over something that doesn't really happen a lot or that only happens to women who don't have access to health care or currently in like lower socioeconomic positions. And I was just like, no. And I was explaining to her using research terms about what controls were and all these things to say like this is a trend that is real and it is something that black women should be aware of and think about as they are trying to prepare for healthy pregnancies and you know healthy birthing experiences so it's interesting that you say that because I had to like pull out all of my research methodological skills on this therapist who was like okay like you just gotta have faith girl I was okay you'll be okay too I was like what (laughs) that's literally not how pregnancy works I feel like this is such like a this is like a a black issue but it's a black women issue in particular because there's there's some like patriarchy argument going on here about this way that we gloss over pregnancy as this happy, wonderful time that all women just glow through. Like that's not the case. There are many women who struggle with infertility, right? There's many women who struggle with carrying full-term pregnancies. There are many women who have serious complications uh, after giving birth. And we don't have the exact numbers on this particular heart issue because so many women experience exactly what I did. So when I was on this Facebook group, everyone has a very similar story in the sense that they knew something was wrong. And for months and months and months, nobody believed them because they're just supposed to have a baby and go home and take care of the baby. And that's what, you know, pregnancy and birth um, has been presented to us as it's, actually much harder than than people suggest or that the picture that people want to paint of it uh, it's so much harder on one's body that then people want to paint it and I'm not trying to say this to scare anyone but I do think that there is a conversation that really is not being had about all of the things that can Uh, effectively go wrong before, during, and after pregnancy. And I think that we're kind of doing each other a disservice by not sharing these stories, 
by not telling people the aftermath of what occurred. And I'm going to tell you that when I was sharing my story with my older sister, even my grandmother, they were both like, oh yeah, I had to take a quote unquote, like a water pill after giving birth. Oh yeah, I had to be on blood pressure medication. These are things that people don't talk about. It's very likely that both my sister and my grandmother experienced some heart issues following the births of their children. And no one considered that it might be related to peripartum cardiomyopathy because the narrative about black people is that we all have high blood pressure, which is true because of, you know, historical and social and environmental stressors. But a lot of things are being overlooked and just swept under the rug, essentially, because of the narratives that we have around certain groups of people. And I don't think that it does the medical field any service uh, not to have these kind of conversations and to really look inward and question why these numbers exist. Yeah, I think, you Mm. know, there's a really obvious gendered analysis to be had about even how women have been treated in science, hysteria, right? So Mm -hmm. any woman that is talking a little bit too much about her pain or what she's going through is hysterical, is overly emotional. And then there's the counter narrative that while women are the weaker sex, our strength is in pregnancy, Like that's the one time we're taught socially to be strong is like when we have children, when we bear children. And so probably a lot of women feel that they want to really embrace that narrative, embrace this moment that's supposed to be about strength. But what does that like mean, like you said, for the reality of what that experience is like and all of the medical complications that can come before, during, and postpartum. And also, definitely, I have an idea. Uh, you should definitely do a say anything move with that therapist and like play this interview <laughs> outside her office on a boombox. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So w- one thing I we, we have to ask, because I'm pretty sure other moms, or other women who might be thinking of becoming pregnant while in graduate school, me being one of them, only have two years left, but I got to like try to time this thing right. And I I don't know if we'll be as quick as you and Dan were. (laughs) Do you have any strategies on balancing either pregnancy in graduate school or mommyhood in graduate school? Yeah, I mean, I the, the number one thing for me is to really, really have in-depth talks with your partner uh, before you even start, right? To make sure that y'all are on the same page about, um, number one, having a baby. Number two, how, how you're going to manage your schedules once you have a baby. How you're going to raise the baby, get on the same page values-wise, and then there's like the practical things of like, do you want to have a nanny or do you want the baby to go to daycare? Like there are things like how flexible is your work going to be and, you know, coming to these appointments with me or um, how involved do you want each other to be during the pregnancy and once the baby is, is home. And I, I think that I was lucky in the sense that we got pregnant 
so quickly and easily and really unexpectedly, but also that we had had about 10 years together to think deeply about our shared values and how we wanted to raise our baby. That's not to say that we don't get in disagreements about things now, but it's really good to have that stable base. And it doesn't really hurt to have like a, a timeline. Like I wanted to be through my coursework before I had a child. I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility in my schedule, which is also part of the reason of having her during grad school. It seems really hard and stressful to do it when we just talk about it, but I can't imagine what my mom did or what my husband's mom did when they had to work 40 hours a week and had to go to a specific place or any of the moms in the world that have to do that. I'm so fortunate to be able to work from home uh, whenever I want to, or only have to go to campus a, a a few days a week, and then I get to spend a lot of time with my baby. So really having a good sense of what your schedule is going to be and deciding what you want to do. Do you want to be mostly stay at home? Do you want to be working 40, 50 hours a week, either one of those is fine as long as it aligns with what you want to do and how it aligns with the kind of values that you and your partner want to put forth for your baby. And I'm going to tell you that before I got pregnant, there was no way that I was thinking about being a stay-at-home mom. I thought, oh no, that would be so boring for me. Like, I don't know what I would do. I would be so like antsy. And I'm going to tell you that I love being at home with her. It's such a a stark contrast to who I thought that I was when I first started grad school a few years ago, who I thought that I was 10 years ago, who I thought that I was the day that she was born. It's, it's a whole different game changer. I love that. Mm. You know, people are allowed to change and grow or to say that they want one thing and then realize that they don't want that. And so I'm so happy you shared that with us. I think people don't really allow themselves to be okay with the fact that they've changed their mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You really don't know what to expect until they get here. And then you're like, oh, wow, there's a whole human being that I am supposed to socialize in a positive way and help them grow into like a productive, but also thoughtful and caring human being. (laughs) This might take some doing. (laughs) Whitney, you and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago. And one thing that I like that you said was that when you do work on campus, you do what you need to do. But when you're at home, you're at home and your daughter has your full attention. And, you know, just learning, I guess, how to compartmentalize a little bit. But it also sounds like you do work at work at home sometimes. Yeah. So that was, even that was a journey for me. Once I decided like, oh, I'm going to be home with this lovely baby all the time and she will sleep and then I will just do work and it'll be great. But that's literally not how it works. (laughs) And like, I have a, we're very lucky. I have a super chill, lovely little baby, but she requires a lot of attention and I'm happy to give it to her. And I will say that it took me about three and a half to four months to realize I needed to make the days home with her solely about her until she went to bed for the night because I was spending a lot of time like answering emails and there's just like this the sadness that I would have where like I'm answering an email but she's like not full out crying but like whining for me 
and feeling that I'm present, but not actually present. And I decided that I really wanted to be as present as possible for her, which meant putting my phone down for the most part and really closing my computer. And that has given me so much more peace of mind. I remember feeling so split all the time in the sense that my mind was half here with her and half thinking about the project that I was working on or the class that I was teaching assistant for. And then I would find myself doing the same thing when I was actually on campus, mind half at home with her. And when I decided that I was going to just focus on her when I was home and just focus on school when I was at school, things got so much easier for both places once I decided to do that. And it's given me a lot of joy in the time that I'm spending with her, I'm not thinking about the deadline that I have or all the other things that I have to do because I have a, a specified time for that. You know, that's for tomorrow or that's for Tuesday. And so it really just let me breathe a little bit more. And I'm sure it's much nicer for her because I'm not, you know, as stressed out. Babies can feel that from their parents. So mm-hmm. I want it to be as calm and chill as possible. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it wasn't that calm and chill when she was first born because of all of the health issues that I have. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to make up for a lot of that now. Mm. Well, this this was excellent. I, I don't know, if Rachel, if you have any more questions or comments, but I know for me, hearing your story, reading it on the New York Times in response to their larger piece about maternal health Health outcomes of Black mothers, reading that, but actually hearing it was so different. And I am happy that you were able to advocate for yourself, use the knowledge and the skills that, you know, you gained from navigating the ivory tower and being able to ultimately seek out the resource or the support that you needed to get well for your beautiful baby, who you eventually figured out how to balance it all for. So... This this was really awesome, and I yeah, appreciate you I sharing. agree. This was just so good. It was so interesting. And also, I think it's important for people to think about family and how they're organizing their time. The last bit you were just talking about with me giving your full energy at home to your daughter. For me, it it made me think about how I spend time with my nieces and nephews. And there's always that guilt and baggage with graduate school and maybe with academia that, oh, I should be writing or I should be answering emails or I got to finish reading this book. But making your personal relationships a priority sometimes means just putting all of that aside and being okay with not doing that work. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I think it's a really important lesson to put out there, which is to advocate for oneself. And at the end of the day, I'm not advocating just for me. I'm advocating for my little one. You're a beautiful little one. I, I have the uh, the picture of the postcard you sent. It's on my refrigerator. And I'm like, oh, so cute, so cute. <laughs> no, she is good. <laughs> all righty. Well, again, thank you all for tuning in. We hope that you gained something from this and we'll definitely be sure to post resources and articles about this really important issue. Thank you for spending this time listening to us. Bye. 
If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.theebonytower.com, or email us at info at theebonytower.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.